Christian Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. I'm Ezri, Ayla in Sakura. And you're listening to General Intellectiness. And this time we are actually starting our reading of the actual book, Computer Power and Human Reason by Joseph Weizenbaum, um, which I think was, what, 1976, if I get that right. Yes, 76. Um, that sounds correct. Uh, yeah, so the previous ap- uh, couple of episodes were kind of um, warm up for, for this actually starting the book. And this, I, I'm enjoying this quite a bit um, so far. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It is, I mean, as the article, the turnoff article sort of said, like, it is kind of eclectic the way it's organized. But I think it's a little bit, well, at least so far, it feels a little bit more logically organized than he suggested. Like, it's like, oh, okay. Like, there's a philosophical introduction. And then we get a couple chapters on, hey, what are computers? From the perspective right. of somebody who, like, kind of interacted with the fundamentals of, like, theories of computation as a novelty and not as something that is just, like, 100% 101 engineering uh, textbook material, um, like, where, you know, yeah, like, obviously Turing was way before his time, but... It still is a little bit more contemporary than um, it would be for us, right? Where it's kind of like, if you're going to get into computers, the necessity of understanding computation as a sort of theory is very low, right? (laughs) Like, you don't really need to understand like what a von Neumann machine and a Turing machine is and, 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 and all of that kind of stuff. Um, this, this feels a little bit more sort of like the theory and the practice are a bit closer to each other. Yeah. Like I, you could tell this is written by like an OG comp sci head, like someone who could probably, probably program, you know, before even touching the keyboard, like, you could just think it through and be like, all right, that sounds good. Because it's like, statement, computers cannot think. Um, t- to prove, okay, a bit is, like, this is what it <laughs> means to, 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 like, this is what machine language is. Like, let me, let me just explain little by little why computers can't think as I'm giving you an intro to CS, like, 101. Like, it's real fun. Um, his, his fondness for like paper exercises, it really does betray that kind of era of like doing your computation on paper before even touching a keyboard. <laughs> Certainly. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It, it reminds me of mathematical proof. Like it, it, it reminds me of the type of person that you want to be when you're trying to learn how to do proofs is that you could just go through all the steps Without the, you know, the important feedback that he's talking about, you know, uh, with computer programmers, there's a big fetish for like, for this ability to do it all like, you know, before you even touch the keyboard. But I've never really met anybody like that. Like, even people who study it in in school, I mean, I, I know that they're around somewhere, but I can't tell how much of that is like a game of chicken where they're just not admitting that they're figuring it out from computer feedback. Like... I, I can't tell. And, and, and the deeper I go into it, the more I realize how important that game of chicken is. Like, Yeah, I, I it's I don't know. I I don't think 
I've ever met anybody who just like writes in pseudocode and then is like, uh, yes, I will implement the program and it will be perfect. Yeah, I mean, my, my day-to-day is very iterative. Yeah, it's very much a kind of dialogue back and forth, which is like, funnily enough, like one of the only points that's actually in Chapter 3, <laughs> like right at the end. Chapter 3 is so interesting because um, it's just like explaining like the electrical fucking basis for computation and like what bits are <laughs> yeah. and shit like that. It's very quaint yeah. and funny. And then he finally gets to a point in the last eight pages or so. Um, yeah, but that. like, if you if you imagine like writing this in 1976, right, and like... Of you know, these are people like your audience are people who have like sort of lived through like the heydays of like mechanical engineering, and like they maybe they have some familiarity with like basic electrical stuff. Uh, it's maybe more relatable as like this is what computers are working from that technological context than somebody who grew up with, like, Windows or a smartphone or whatever, you know? Yeah, I feel like people just have, um, or at least a lot of people, have a kind of just basic understanding they picked up by osmosis of, like, what bits and bytes are or something. So it's it's just funny to see it explained, like, it's going back to Electrical Engineering 101 uh, in college or whatever. Um, totally, totally. I, the fact is, I've been a, a you know I don't work in tech. I was never able to break in and make bank or whatever. Uh, the and and so it was like, oh oh thanks thanks Mr. Weisenbaum. You know like when he's going through that stuff, it was I I um, I don't know. Maybe I should just be you know che- I should cheerfully admit that I forgot what a bite was. And you know he's <laughs> like oh this is a nice philosophical way to. <laughs> reintroduce that notion thanks dude no I, like, I do that all the time um I, I forget how wide a bite is and how, how like how wide, how wide is a word again it's oh it's four of them um oh yeah no exactly it's like this is like the stuff that you like look up on wikipedia or yeah. whatever wiki it is for the programming language or like <laughs> stack exchange or something because like your brain is right. too rotten to actually like hold this information in it uh yeah it's just like i have a vague understanding of it but then you know whenever i need to sort of like actually interface with the information i do need to go look it up again oh totally all the time um yeah let's see um let's talk a bit about the preface i guess um preface to the first edition is is pretty interesting um he opens with saying this book is only nominally about computers in an important sense the computer is used here merely as a vehicle for moving certain kinds of ideas that are much more important than computers and then a little bit later uh, says that we all of us have made the world too much into a computer and that this remaking of the world in the image of the computer started long before there were any electronic computers um, so he's, he's kind of like concerned with like the computer is the object of study here, but it's the culmination of a transformation process that has been go- going on over centuries. And the computer makes this process legible in a way that things didn't before quite so much. Extremely Marx, right? It's extremely like the bourgeois mode of production is like the o- the first mode of production that can reveal the history of production. Right. It illuminates uh, of of uh, yeah of like the development of the relation to nature and, and modus of production as such um, yeah um, he also front loads um, some of the points from the book um, 
I guess one of the most important ones is that um, the book contains the major arguments which are in essence first that there is a difference between man and machine and second that there are certain tasks which computers ought not be made to do independent of whether computers can be made to do them. Um, so kind of giving the game away in the first couple of pages. Um, and the rest is, is most, is, the rest is the same, the rest of that preface is the same kind of thanks to everyone kind of stuff. Um, yeah, name drops Lewis Mumford and Noam Chomsky. Yeah, Lewis Mumford. Oh, and then H- Hillary Putnam and Daniel Dennett. I was surprised to see both of those names. Uh, yeah, the, that that plucky young upstart Daniel Dennett, you know? That seems so promising. Outstanding young philosopher from Tufts. <laughs> yeah. uh, academia work, really worked its hooks into him. This, uh, this book was written by his children and his uh, wife Ruth as much as him, so uh, thanks to, to all of them. It is very sweet. Uh, this- it, 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 I do enjoy the like discussion of like the productive process here. Mm. Uh, like, you know, oh, it's uh, finally everyone who's ever written a book will know what an enormous burden such a task imposes on the author's family. My r- wife, Ruth, suffered my retreats to my study with the utmost goodwill and patience. She helped me over the inevitable bouts of the feelings of guilt that overcome an author when he is writing, for then he is not with his family, even when he is with them, and when he is not writing, for then he is not doing what he has set himself to do. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm hyper-focused. I can't do anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm useless. Uh, yeah, the my children... Yeah, my children counted the pages as they mounted on my desk, and they grieved when, as often happened, the stack of pages in the wastebasket grew more quickly than that on my desk. Most of all, they cheerfully endured the endless progress reports that punctuated our dinner table tr- uh, conversation. This book is Ruth's and our children's as much as mine, which is to say, you know, like, it's that very weird thing about writing where like you can't you can't really be present in your life even when you are present in your life and also you like desperately need other people to like facilitate this weird trip you're going on because you can't even take care of yourself you know yeah it's it sucks in short it sucks and it's like a drain on everyone around you (laughs) And that's, uh, that's why I ha- like I keep trying to like write some stuff and I just keep, you know, just giving up and trying to live life. Oops, like to the to the to the sh- to the absolute. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say delight, you know, people around me are rooting for me, but it is so it is so much better to not be like obsessed with some ideas that you, you can't put down like and to be more and to be present and to be like. I don't know. Like, I, I wish I could be all the time. But, you know, fact is, you know, eventually I should like to write something. And whenever I am writing something, oh, if if there was that tactile experience of having to take everything I wrote and put it in the garbage <laughs> and my, my, my children are watching me do it, like just watching this. <laughs> it's literalization of all the time I didn't spend with them and I'm just throwing it like that would I you know, all I have to do is hit like you know Apple A backspace you know totally. like, I don't have to do that like, yeah that's the thing is like can you imagine like it, it, you know we're talking about computers here can you imagine like moving things around with your hands like a fucking animal doing that kind of stuff you know instead of just typing you know <laughs> I, mean, I've, I mean I've done it before <laughs> yeah. but maybe I should 
Maybe it would get me back in touch with my animality and surprise the things I put on paper. Anyway, uh, this is just, you know, just thousand miles stare thinking about grad school. Anyway, let's move on to the next preface. <laughs> the next preface is so much more downbeat, right? It's it's really quite sad. <laughs> it, I'd, I'd say it's double plus good. It's, it's really good. Yeah. It's, it's got bite to it. So this is the 1984 edition, the preface for that. And he's kind of reflecting on looking back, just like how this active, like, criticism was such a solitary thing like trying to trying to criticize and resist was this lonely fucking journey um and that like even even if he's like he's he's pissing against the wind basically and he's reflecting on that and it's like well you know he's still doing it even though he, he knows he's losing right it's like nobody seems to want to hear what he's saying and he's kind of quite sad about that yes exactly um i do love the uh i do love the the line, uh, the architect of the German V2 mm-hmm. rockets, mm-hmm. Werner von Braun, entitled his autobiography, I Aim for the Stars. Londoners, however, will remember that he usually hit London. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. That's wonderful. Yeah. Victims of modern war may have the satisfaction of knowing that the bombs which destroy their cities are intended to destroy them. Yeah. Because, like... Uh, Weizenbaum is in this kind of position of like you can imagine a critic of uh, von, um, uh, Werner von Braun saying like hey look you, you keep using these kind of lofty kind of fucking platitudes to like disguise the fact that you're just making fucking weapons you know it's like oh you know I, I aim for the stars I, I I just have to make them go up I don't care where they come down yeah but you, you do right your paycheck is written by people who want it to come down in a very specific place and it's not an accident that you make it come down there and similarly Weizenbaum is dealing with all these AI fucking ideologists who are like oh it's it's just you know manifesting intelligence and yada yada and it's like yeah but also you're being paid by people to fucking kill people right? or you you're being put to very particular ends um it's very like the stuff you get in uh schmidt's disciplined binds about like assignable curiosity this like property of usually technical workers where they kind of have this weird thing of being using this smokescreen of being really into just like the the beauty of physics and shit like that and like oh I, I don't i don't care how my research gets applied yeah but it's the pentagon that's paying you and they're paying you to make things for weapons you know like it's a fig leaf and he's uh, uh, weissenbaum here is really mad at the fig leaf everyone keeps fucking wearing even though he keeps pointing it out <laughs> Yes, exactly. Just be, be a pure mathematician, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, devote don't, yourself don't touch to useless things. Yeah, yeah but yeah. then Wash 200 years the down the line, your pure mathematics get used to fire artillery shells or something. <laughs> Listen, you know? at, at that point, it's truly not your department, okay? Yeah, like, nice. it's, <laughs> it's not your epoch. It's, you know, it's, it's not a... It's not Euclid's fault that people used, like, geometry to launch... Like, you know, to, to bring artillery shells down in the right place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there, there is sort of the other side of this, too, though, where he talks about, like, um, I certainly failed to foresee the near unanimity and the enormous magnitude of the enthusiasm with which the public, mm-hmm. at least in America, welcomed the computer into its day to day affairs. Um, it talks about, like, you know, uh, swipe cards 
um, owning microcomputers that have like been installed now in washing machines, cameras, automobile engines, watches, typewriters, and telephones. Um, most of us are as unaware of these micros as we are of the many small electric motors that are also all around us. Um, and then he gets into this discussion of computer games. Here it goes. He, he declares games. war. It's so funny. He, decla- <laughs> he fucked with gamers. Yeah, like. right? Yeah, he's, he's after the gamers early. <laughs> 1984, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's amazing. Talk about ahead of the curve. I wasn't even born and he was already coming after me, you know? <laughs> yeah, SimCity is like five years later. <laughs> so he's got a real issue with the, especially, I guess, early games, like having this strong, like, military bend to them. Like, yes. Shoot, shooters and shit like this. I mean, it, it's going to be familiar to anyone listening to this, basically. You know, Call of Duty, shit like that is what we... Yeah, yeah. yeah like, he says, like, in retrospect, it is obvious that precisely those that were most popular at MIT and at other universities, for example, the game Space War, which is, you know, one of the first video games ever, uh, were the forerunners of the games which now dominate in arcades and homes. Why I missed their significance eight years ago is not at all clear to me. Um, uh, Yeah, it's like, he's like, so then it comes to like gaming and he's like, whatever despair our society's use of, television induces it must be doubled and redoubled by the vision of countless youngsters standing hypnotized before computer displays their heads moving in the manner of those of a shell-shocked soldier i think what is happening to young people at the computer arcades and in some of their classrooms is a parable of our time a sad and disturbing story so it's like yeah like when you were when you were playing Super Mario Brothers as a kid, like you were living in the ultimate dystopia. Yeah, sounds correct. Yeah, to me. but like uh, I, 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 I want to re- rewind the paragraph because it's like if Adorno could see Fortnite. It's like, <laughs> yes, yes, exa- exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah. there is no question in my mind now that the computer game phenomenon, at least as it is playing itself out in the United States powerfully validates the general cultural pessimism, which computer power and human reason expresses. <laughs> like this is his victory. Lap. Adorno's scathing critique of Fortnite dances. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the thing he's kind of really worried about here, and I agree it's very funny, but like it's, it's this disconnect between technical action and consequence and a subsequent abstraction in thought and then like a psychic numbing to the consequence. And I guess that this is what I was getting at uh, previously with like the bomber pilots who can just kind of go, yeah, whatever the fuck and not really give a shit much, much about their, their targets, whatever, or this, this kind of, you know, abstraction, you know, and, and disconnect. Um, I guess like these days, uh, soldiers use fucking Xbox controllers to control drones, this kind of stuff. Like, um, there's actually, this really funny like story I have here that like, um, uh, my daughter's six, and she doesn't play that much in the way of video games, but she's kind of been getting a little into them. And I don't know, she's kind of like not great with a controller or whatever. So you just you pick things that are kind of easy and she can enjoy. And she had she had to go at Minecraft one day uh, on the PlayStation, and I was like, oh yeah, sure, we'll just set it up for it. And like she was like struggling with the controls, and then she was like, 
um, you know, she spotted like a sheep just wandering around and she was like, Mama, how do I kill it? And I was like, what? <laughs> her, her immediate instinct was just like this bloodthirst, like this kind of like, yeah, how do you, how do you do a haya on the buttons? You know, so she wanted to get out the sword and do a haya to like fucking kill the sheep. And I was like, this is kind of strange. And I, I kind of, this is what this kind of stuff kind of reminds me of. But I was kind of like, I was like to her, I was like, yeah, that's okay. Fair enough. And like, I kind of interrogated her, like, why? Why do you? Why do you immediately want to kill the animal in the video game? And she's like, I want to pretend that I'm alone in the wilderness and I want to eat the meat to survive. You know. So it was it was a game to her. You know, kind of cute. Yeah. But I don't know. But, that sounds pretty. That sounds pretty awesome to me. It is. And like, but see, I was momentarily <laughs> worried, and then and then it came around to like, no, this is actually quite cute play because I I kind of I was like. I was like, yeah, but like, you, you know not to do that to real animals, right? And she's like, mom, I know that. Like, it's a game. Okay. You know, okay. like, so on the one hand, I think Weizenbaum would be a little bit worried by that interaction also. But on the other hand, like, I don't know that it necessarily inculcates an actual bloodlust in people, you know, like. Yeah, well, so this, this, like, concern that Weizenbaum has is the beginning of what's called effects research about games. Yeah. And that is the oldest form of game studies there is, is effects research, which is does video like do video games actually make people violent is a question that is raised again and again and again and again and again and again and again about about video games. Um, and the answer seems to be eh, like maybe in some ways but who knows and can we trust any of this is it all just compromised by the games industry who knows um it, it doesn't seem to be conclusive in any way uh, so how many decades has been put into that <laughs> that that Eporia, like, I'm just curious, like, is that like four decades? Like, are we talking? Oh, yeah. Like since the oh. 80s. So right, right. we're yeah. Yeah. So about this time. Um, so deep Eporia about this. We don't. Know. I mean, and, it, you know, it's it's similar to like effects research about pornography, right? Like there seems to be some kind of connection, but it's very hard to specify. Um uh, yeah. So th there's there's something interesting here that, like, you know, as we can see in the interaction with my daughter, it's like the interacting with the computer or interacting with a game, one does undergo a certain kind of psychic numbing and a kind of abstraction and a disconnection of action from consequence. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because, as as she pointed out, it's like, yeah, I know they're not real animals. <laughs> like, I'm not I'm not going to go play. and fucking kill a real sheep. You know what I mean? Um, yes. Right. That yeah, that's that's what play lets you do. You can pretend to be a vampire or a doctor and not worry about, you know, draining someone's blood or, you know, a botched operation, right? Like, so, okay, all right. Point. Yeah, but then we get to the oh, sort of extreme God. case of, like, this is just not okay, which is Custer's Revenge, right? Okay. Um, which yeah. is, like, one of the most vile games ever made, uh, which yeah, is, perfect. you know, really saying something. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, uh, I mean, you can look it up if you want to. You know, it's just yeah, it's really bad. it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah, I was wondering how we were going to handle this on here because yeah, it's it's a sexual violence game against like indigenous women. Like it's it's one of the it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. 
and and it's, it's super early too and it was, it's a sort of weird like gorilla game i don't think it was licensed but it was on like a nintendo console if i'm if i'm, if I'm recalling this correctly uh, no wait it can't be a nintendo's console because it's 1984 okay but it was it was like widely ported gorilla style in the 90s like um because i, I definitely see, saw it and i was like what the fuck what in god's name is this like um and and so yeah this is the most obvious form of psychic numbing and the concern that he has about the distance between an action and the push of a button and whereas earlier you know he he was talking about you know bombing and he was talking about someone watching someone bombing on television versus bombing in a video game and he hesitates to say the thrill of killing because it's you know it's he he doesn't want to say the thrill of killing. He wants to say, you know, the thrill of hitting the button and seeing the thing happen. And this is the worst thing that you can think of um, to happen when hitting the button. This is what he means by psychic numbing. Only abstract operations on plastic buttons remain. The most gruesome and frightful insult a man can wreak upon a woman is cleansed of all the torment, horror, anguish. Um, and it it, it, it's, it sort of reminds me about like how um, hate groups uh, use like gaming communities as mm-hmm. recruiting areas, right? And I, I feel like Custer's Revenge is very much sort of like of a piece with that kind of phenomenon, where it's 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 basically like hate literature, but it's a mm-hmm. video game, right? And well, the thing that gets me with that is is that they recruit from like Roblox, yeah, right? Kids games, like, yeah, not, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. It's not like the kids are all playing Custer's Revenge, you know, two thousand, you know, like no, but there is like you know, it also is like violent video games as well. But you're right; it doesn't right. even have to be a violent video game. It could just be anything where kids are and and susceptible to being preyed yeah. upon. Yeah. Like anything where there's a kid where there's being babysitted by like a you, you see this in virtual reality. If you ever go in, if you ever play, have the misfortune playing a virtual reality game where there's voice chat. There's always like a bunch of children who are unsupervised. Like, and why? <laughs> why? Why? Why should this happen? Like, yeah. So like, I mean. I don't know. I, I I think there's something. There is something to this. There's a kernel of something in here, as kind of funny as it is to be this mad about video games. Um, I think he's he's sort of on the right track with this kind of. Well, he's on a a right track with this kind of concern about like increasing abstraction and like psychic numbing and such and distance. But I I don't know that like the particulars of the examples are um, really stand up to too much scrutiny. Yeah, but, like, I think they're, it's very complicated, because, like, I think the thing is that the things that are disturbing about this stuff are sort of inherent possibilities within the very idea of fiction. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, it, 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 like, you can read a novel and be put in the perspective of a violent protagonist right? right and i don't know if that's really that different from playing a video game where you are that protagonist um 
I just I just don't know if there is anything much more to it than uh, maybe the reach that some of these games have uh, in terms of their audiences. But it's I I just I think like the human capacity to engage in violent thinking in fiction and play vastly predates computers absolutely and like um and and i feel like you know a lot of the a lot of the violent ideology that we have today also vastly predates computers like you know the spanish conquistadors did not grow up on custer's revenge they grew up in the back like yeah they exactly they grew up in like the poorest parts of spade just being the most vicious places you could possibly grow up and became the most vicious people, you know? Um, it, it's, yeah. Uh, and, and, and there's also this thing where our society, um, on a interpersonal everyday level is far less violent than most civilizations have been in history but we enact habitual violence on an astounding scale, right? In a way that we are disconnected from, right? Um, you know, what, what like factory farming, destroying ecosystems, it, uh, engaging in sort of like capitalist consumerism that is torturing thousands upon thousands of people, all this kind of stuff. But like in no way are, do we experience that violence as violence and i think that's probably more concerning than the violent enactment you get in video games um yeah yeah i I guess just to strengthen his like just to focus on what he's most disturbed with here is is that it's that you hit the button and the u-boat goes down that's it that's the difference it's the difference between you know reading american psycho or watching american psycho or you know playing I don't know, American Psycho 2000, like... Um, yeah, but, but I mean, again, for right, me, it's like you that, turn the page. You turn the page of the book, that's a decision. It's, it's it, it, yeah, you, uh, there's you something to it, to but I don't cheese. think there's very much to it that is in addition to what fiction gets you uh, in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I think I agree with you, but it's it, this is an argument that comes up in a lot of... Uh, well, I guess in in people that comment on the difference between like the the spectacle and the simulation, and the the changing what like structure of ideology or like how it's experienced or whatever, it's it's sort of a bugaboo of a lot of cultural theorists. And I wonder, yeah, I don't know. Like maybe it doesn't matter that much. Maybe all the problem is in a is is already there in literature. Um, including the one which we're going to talk about, which how you're exposed to it in an educational institution, because that's, you know, where I started playing computer games. Now, granted, a lot of those were, you know, edutainment or edutainment adjacent, you know, like I played, uh, the logical journey of the Zumbinis, or I played, uh, SimCity 2000, which is where all these 2000 jokes are coming from, or uh, Civilization 2 or something in, you know, computer lab at school. But they also wanted me to read, you know, this literature that usually 
I think one of the reasons why people stop reading after you know going to school is that in English literature, you learn that the most important books are the ones that are sad and disturbing. And so people are like, okay, I'll stop. Like, <laughs> yeah, these suck. <laughs> yeah, this fucking sucks. Like, what? What a bummer. Like, um, but that doesn't happen with video games. Yeah, because they're fun. Um, the the common thread, I guess, there is that he's reflecting on the the ways that young people are introduced to computers, and the two places they're introduced to them are in the arcade and in the classroom. And he's kind of he's kind of wondering, like, well, how does this shape people and how does it shape society ultimately, the way that these things are introduced and, and kind of, I guess on the arcade thing, he has that very Ardono, Ardono anti-jazz kind of stuff of like bah humbug or whatever, which is one thing. But then on the education... Yeah, it's pretty easy to be bah humbug about arcade games, yeah, to sure. be fair. Like, I mean, they're very, like, on the nose, right? Like, it's... It's designed in such a way that, like, you will continue dropping money into the machine because it, it makes lots of noise and lights and is engaging. And uh, and and usually the game concept has to be, like, extremely upfront um, because it it just has to grab you and keep you going, right? Listen, it's time to make some crazy money. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I liked arcades. I was sad when they all died. I don't yeah, know. But fun. yeah, but 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 when you go back and play when you go back and play an arcade game right now it's like oh man this is really hard and thank god i don't have to pay between rounds like i i have played plenty of arcade games over the years and still do no, it's no. just that it, 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 if you're going to subject somebody to cultural criticism, I feel like they're probably the easiest target because they're so, like, straightforward in what they do. It's the original gacha game. They just didn't have, like, a, you know, per, pers- they didn't have, like, a personal connection, like, sending you a good morning text, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's right. So, but in, in the kind of classroom, then, it's, there's a kind of similar concern, I guess, that, like, He's seeing all this kind of like information society shit get rolled out and like kind of computers get rolled into classrooms. And what he sees is a kind of uncritical adoption of a new technology where nobody seems to understand the implications of what the fuck is going on. And nobody seems to even stop to think that there might be implications to the way this would shape minds and shape people's relationships with the world. Um, Which is a very good point. Right. This is a very good point. It is an excellent. It's, it's a much better point than the video game one, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And he, it's kind of like, well, we're teaching kids how to maybe use these tools to like model things and stuff. But like, we're not teaching them that models are always impoverished, that like a model always omits essential features of the thing it's trying to represent. And like, we're, we're kind of like, the teachers are not sufficiently critical. Therefore, the students are not sufficiently critical. Therefore, everybody. And it, it kind of goes back to that earlier point about just the, the sheer fucking enthusiasm everyone has for this kind of stuff. And Weizenbaum finds himself, you know, as I said earlier, just pissing against the wind. And like everyone else is like swarming to this stuff without giving a shit. And he's like, please fucking think for a moment. You, you motherfuckers, like think about this shit before doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh... I, I had some uh, sort of first-hand experience of this where I was, um, I, I, I I had this like uh, aerodynamic problem on my car where the, 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 I lost a piece of the car on, on the underbody and it was causing my car to lift, like produce lift at, at high speeds, right? Um, and, and so I was like, okay, how am I going to solve this problem, right? And so I was looking into like solutions and 
there's this there's this one guy he's like i don't know like an australian engineer or something on youtube and i think his name's julian edgar but he was saying like yeah a lot of people will try to do like computational fluid dynamics uh modeling of cars in order to figure out what to do with the aerodynamics on their car but you could just go out with like a bunch of yarn and stick it on your car and it's a way better than using cfd it just means you have to go outside but like it's not a simulation it's like actually your car moving through the air as opposed to this uh. thing that is completely divorced from the context but people fetishize the computer simulation because they're like "Ooh, it's fancy when you could just use some tape and yard and get a better result um because it's it's contextually embedded unlike the simulation yeah and so for weissenbaum this whole thing is like yeah, we're kind of giving the students a big shiny and telling them it can do anything. And then they're kind of uncritically accepting, oh, this is a miracle machine, it can do anything. We're not teaching them that there are limits to the knowledge of, you know, these models. You know, they're, 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 you, you have a kind of, if you're dealing with reality, you're, you're, you're through this thing, you're necessarily dealing with an impoverished representation of reality. And all of this is a kind of abdication of responsibility, right? That like if, if you're, it's creating a similar psychic numbing, this is a much better point than the video game point, but like a psychic numbing to the consequences of one's work. If you're like enthusiastically going through this medium because it's cool and you don't really give a shit if it corresponds to reality or not. Yeah, you just assume it does, right? It's like, oh, it's a simulation, so it must be sophisticated, right? Yeah, and and he's he's very concerned about the consequences of millions of minds being conditioned in this way constantly at scale. Like, he's asking, what the fuck happens to a society that develops this kind of psychic numbness? And, uh, you know, this... Uh, and, and he gets to the kind of ultimate problem, really, the... Uh, what's the quote here? Uh, the effect on ch the effect on children of being exposed to the idolization of the kind of rationality required to program computers, of the further elevation of calculation above judgment, must be understood in the context of the culture in which it takes place. And it's like, yeah, it's an increasing and again, this this thing of like the computer revealing an ongoing process of the elevation of calculation above judgment. Exactly. Yeah. This is, uh... yeah. This is a cultural prehistory of Reddit. <sighs> yeah, I mean, this. Ah, <laughs> uh, fuck. Um, so. I, I mean, I, I totally had this attitude as a kid, and yeah, so I, I completely I, I find I find uh, I find this argument convincing because it 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 took a lot of like experience of thinking to like deprogram this way of thinking out of my head. Yeah, totally. Um, same. Where it's like, oh, but if you do it in the computer, you could just know things. Look, it, it took it took me just having not being able, having my logical circuits gummed up, having existential problems, so that I had to just be a, kind of resentful and be like, ah, fuck that shit. It's not even worth it. Just sour grapes. Had, I was just being irrational about it because, you know, at that point in my life, it was sort of out of reach. I think you know that that you might accidentally gained a, something of a useful perspective by being irrational about this kind of this kind of irrationality yeah yeah i, I was lucky 
so with with the with the retrospective bits out of the way, I guess, um, let's move on to the introduction. This this is a hell of a fucking firecracker of an introduction. It's a very good introduction. Yeah, yeah. it's a banger. Oh yeah, with two two uh, great heads of uh, of early history, uh, Michael. Yeah, Polanyi, it's is uh... Nikolai Bukharin. Yeah, it, it says in 1935, Michael Polanyi, then holder of the chair of physical chemistry at the Victoria University of Manchester, England, was suddenly shocked into a confrontation with philosophical questions that have ever since dominated his life. The shock was administered by Nikolai Bukharin, one of the leading theoreticians of the Russian Communist Party, who told Polanyi that, quote, under socialism, the conception of science pursued for its own sake would disappear, for the interests of scientists would spontaneously turn to the problems of the current five-year plan. Polanyi sensed then that, quote, the scientific outlook appeared to have produced a mechanical conception of man and history in which there was no place for science itself. And further that, quote, this conception denied altogether any intrinsic power to thought and thus denied any grounds for claiming freedom of thought. Um, I don't know how much time Polanyi thought he would devote to developing an argument for a contrary concept of man in history. His very shock testifies to the fact that he was in profound disagreement with Bukharin, therefore that he already conceived of man differently, even if he could not then give explicit form to his concept. It may be that he determined to write a counter-argument to Bukharin's position, drawing only on his own experience as a scientist, and to have done it in done with it in short order. As it turned out, however, the confrontation with philosophy triggered by Bukharin, Bukharin's revelation, was to demand Polanyi's entire attention from then to the present day. Um, yeah, and that stands as Bukharin's singular most important contribution to history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's very funny that it's like Bukharin is like the quote unquote the good one. Um, right. And he's still a fucking like robot. The most intellectual of the Bolsheviks. Right. Uh, oh, he's so sensitive. Uh, yeah. wi widely liked. Um, and, and still he's like, yeah, science. No, that's just like that's just another form of engineering. There, the, the, you know, there, there is, there is no such thing as a distinction between science and engineering. It's like, it's like the sick, like bizarro world version of the idea of unity of science. Um, oh my god, you're right. Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> unity of mechanism. Um, so, like, the the the, the example here is, is that, like, I think Weizenbaum sees himself in Polanyi's shoes of kind of. Holding a position that, like, he's kind of surprised is contentious. Like, you know, for Polanyi, science is creative and creation springs from autonomous individuals. But then it's, it's this head-on collision with a totally different worldview that seems much more dominant. And, like, Polanyi has to justify himself. And it's like, it's, it should be fucking obvious to you people. Why do I have to justify this shit, you know? Um, and Weizenbaum feels, finds himself in a very similar kind of place where he's like, yeah, I mean, fucking human beings are autonomous individuals and creative and shit like that. Like, what what the fuck is wrong with you people, you know? Um. Yeah, so more or less in the mid-30s, uh, Marxists had ceased to understand what science is. And if, if you look at Karl Popper's understanding of, you know, how Marxism became a pseudoscience, it was in trying to explain the 1930s, like, why things didn't go their way. Um, uh, and, you know, not that I love Karl Popper through and through, but... Uh, feel like he's right about 
like where Marxism started to turn into a pseudoscience. And he's right that it was a scientific enterprise at one point. Um, and, and this is where that went. This is where it went. Uh, I, I think I understand why Stalin threw this guy in a prison. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're giving away the whole plan, man. Don't say that shit out loud. I'm kidding. Of yeah. Course. You got to keep the quiet part quiet, man. You know, um, but like uh, Weizenbaum's kind of parallel shock is the, the, the sort of echo shock, you know, the first tragedy, then as far as kind of shock, shock is his shock and kind of bewilderment at people's response to Eliza, which we covered a lot in the previous episode. But basically, he wrote this computer program. It was an early kind of chatbot or a pseudo chatbot that was basically a really simple language analyzer. You, you, would, you would say something to it and it would just kind of respond with a prompt that was based on what you said and just by matching patterns, whatever. But people took this to be like, oh my God, the computer is alive. It could be an actual psychotherapist. It, it could automate uh, therapy for people. And Weissenbaum's like, what the, f- what the fuck is wrong with you people? Like, come on. Like, I also want to shout out whoever whoever came up with the idea of putting all of Eliza's text in a sans serif all caps uh, in, in a printed book. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That was an inspired choice. Yeah. It looks like robot speak. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely makes in- it feel much more alien. Oh, it's great. Men are all like, in what way? <laughs> <laughs> They're always it's bugging super. us about something or another. Can you think of a specific example? Yeah. yeah, you cannot help but read this in funny robot voice. Yeah. <laughs> so he lists out the shocks that he experienced as um, in three kind of distinct events, right? Like one being that actual practicing psychiatrists seriously believed that this program could grow to a nearly complete automatic kind of psychotherapy. And he's like, no fucking way, dudes. <laughs> you can't be serious. I mean, uh, can I, I just specific shout out to the completely gut-wrenching footnote where Carl Sagan applies his, you know, characteristic charm and, you know, imagination to this idiotic concept. It feels like somebody slipped some Nick Land meth into his Cosmos Kush. You, you want to read that for the listeners? Yeah. No such computer program is adequate for psychiatric use today. But the same can be remarked about some human psychotherapists. In a period when more and more people in our society seem to be in need of psychiatric counseling, and when time-sharing of computers is widespread, I can imagine the development of a network of computer psychotherapeutic terminals, something like arrays of large telephone booths in which, for a few dollars a session, we would be able to talk with an attentive, tested, and largely non-directive psychotherapist. Just slap some Vangelis under that shit and cry. That's so sad. It's just, it's just, yeah, that's right. It's distressing. Um, that's fucked I mean, up, it, man. He, 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 he was, he was not wrong. He was just wrong about attentive, tested, and largely non-directive. Yeah, non-directive? Like, yeah, I can think of a specific example from last time. I'm not going to go into it. I can think of an example from last time. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Why some mom sees this and is like, these people should fucking know better. And also, like, 
what what is the image that the psychiatrist has of their patient if they genuinely think this stuff is automatable and mechanizable? Do they see their patients as machines? Well, and, and of themselves. And themselves. And like, of themselves, yeah, exactly. Don't you better of yourself? Like, come on. Yeah, that's the same could be remarked about some human psychotherapists. Right, like S- Sagan's onto something here. Like <laughs> he's right for the just, wrong reason. Oh, no, it's, it's no, yeah, no, no. It's, it's, we should be doing better than that. Like, why? Why do these psychotherapists think of themselves like an Eliza program? Like, yeah, are, are you no better than a bag of fucking regular expressions? Like, seriously, like, and th- the same shit's happening today, right? Like, with the um, the new wave of chatbots and ChatGPT and stuff, and people are like, oh yeah, yeah, totally, and it's like. Uh, do you genuinely think that you are just a fucking next token predictor? Like, is that what you're telling me? You know, like, do you mm-hmm. do you have no fucking dignity? <laughs> like, you know. But then Weizenbaum <laughs> finds himself being basically alone and giving a shit about dignity. You know, he's like every other motherfucker in the room is like totally into this stuff, and he, you know, Weizenbaum sees this enthusiasm and sees the fucking yeah the the the, the land style outcome of like the human spirit being fucking disemboweled in the machinery, and everyone loves it. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the impression I get from the Turnoff article is that there were a fair number of people who were willing to listen to Weizenbaum, and you know he had he he received quite an audience, but it's not the people who are like making decisions about these things. Yeah, it's not the people who matter. It's everybody else who's like alienated from that and is like. This doesn't sound good, and I I appreciate this critique, but it, it doesn't lead to a change in the trajectory of, like, you know, the overall sort of development of technology. Yeah, but those those were the people he's petitioning. I, I, I shouldn't say that nobody gave a shit what he was saying, but, like, of, of the people he was petitioning, it, it, it landed like a brick and just, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it's just, like... like Bukharin was not convinced, you know? Right, it was basically like Frankfurt schoolers and then like Devo fans, and that's not what he was hoping for. Like he thought people could, would have the capacity to be more rational about this. Like, <sighs> well, yes. Yeah, speaking of that kind of shock, I mean, his his second shock is the the Eliza effect, like the the way that people became very emotionally involved with the the doctor program it, while while talking to it, and like it, it anthropomorphized it so much. Um, a really weird effect that spooked him pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of my dearest, closest friends in the entire world read a transcript of a chat bot having a malfunction and it started to sound sort of schizoid essentially. And he was very disturbed and was and started just asking like, I don't know. Is it, is it, is it having a schizoid meltdown? I'm like, and I was very matter of fact in this conversation and maybe a little blunt because I was like, ah, come on, you can't, you know, there's no way you could, you could think this. Um, but you know, I was not able to dislodge this because it was just so, it just felt true. And you know, we're, that's a much more sophisticated chat bot admittedly having an error. This is Eliza. Yeah. This is the doctor program. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it is like to Weizenbaum, because he programmed it, it is just unambiguously not that fucking sophisticated. But to everyone interacting with it, it seems, um, yeah, they just have an extreme willingness to fantasize and project onto it, um, which which scares Weizenbaum pretty bad. 
What's the third shock? Uh, point three. Another widespread and to me surprising reaction to the ELISA program was the spread of a belief that it demonstrated a general solution to the problem of computer understanding of natural language. So again, people were very enthusiastic to jump on this as like, wow, this guy's actually solved fucking computer parsing of natural language. And, and that was I was like, no, I just, I've got like 30 or 40 lines of fucking Perl here and it does a regex, you know what I mean? Like it's not, um, it's not what you think it is. That's the general theme here is like this, this shit is just not what you think it is. Massive confidence in something being completely misunderstood. Like, just the, the divergence between the divergence between perception and reality is so wide here, and Weizenbaum is just so stunned at how wide that gap is, and yet how confident everyone is in it. Yeah, and yeah, so this this sort of sets him on the trajectory of writing this book and becoming a cr critic of all of these things. Yeah, I don't know, like the the, the general solution to the problem of I remember, you know. Mid two thousands or you know twenty tens, cogsci, like still looking for the deep, the deep grammar, the deep structure of grammar that you could feed into a computer or something. The idea that this this program had it had a general solution. What it also surprises me that this was widespread, like in, in a in a computer computer literate community. Like like even just thinking about it right now, I get kind of all huffy. Like, I don't think we spent as much time on that part last time. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 completely absurd. And this distinction between, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, natural and, uh, like, domain-specific artificial language, um, precise language, is one that, that becomes quite important through the rest of the book. It does. Yeah. Um... So for Weizenbaum, this, this all, all this, these shocks start raising these, like, he starts getting into these really basic questions. Um, and he says that at, at bottom, they are about nothing less than man's place in the universe. Um, he then kind of goes into the kinds of questions he's going to concern himself with. Um, kind of question number one is, what is it about the computer that has brought the view of man as machine to a new level of plausibility? So, like, why... Why does it seem like, what is it about the computer that makes us think this way? That makes us think that we might be mach machines of the same kind? Well, what makes us reduce ourselves in this way to that level? Uh, let's see, what's number two? Um, number two, the fact that individuals bind themselves, oh, this, this one's not really quotable. Um, I need to, it's kind of spread out through the paragraph. What's number two about? This is the humans can pack bond with anything. Oh, sure. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, you know, you slap some googly eyes on a Roomba and you got yourself a pet. Like, shit's real cute. Uh, we, we, you know, we had, we had, you know, a Roomba and we had like a mopping bot in our old apartment. Of course, we had to leave him behind, uh, which was, you know, of course, of course, devastating. Um, and we, we gave them names, you know, like it was, so, you know, but we, our neighbors adopted them. So, you know, they, they, we found them a good home. Um, yeah, it has has a happy ending. All robots go to heaven. Yeah, um, I think there's kind of a bit at the end about like what is it about this kind of like there being these other kind of apparently autonomous agents in the world that kind of brings um, people's own autonomy into question um, in the face of the machine. Um, but that feels like a lot of the stuff we'll get into in the first actual chapter. Yeah, that feels like an extension of the first concern. 
I think he, he sort of like starts out on a strong footing of like stating what the question actually is right next to the number and then yeah, stops yeah. doing it. <laughs> right. So like, I think it's basically that just when, just when you stop believing in our own autonomy and like you, like you rely more on autonomous machines. Um, I think it's about relying on black boxes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, like like relying upon things that you don't understand internally at all, um, but with a kind of blind faith. Yeah, and then I think particularly that um, one can only seem to explain the computer's like apparent mental capacities by making analogy analogy to your own, right? So that like it it as a black box seems to think and that you kind of analogize immediately to your like in order to explain its internals which you don't understand you kind of analogize to your own internals so there's a, a different kind of projection happening there um and and so you're you're projecting without any understanding of what's inside and so like instead of just working with your own it's, people being very skeptical of their own capacities is one thing when they have an accounting of what's going on inside but then you just look towards this thing you don't understand at all, and you're like, that's, that's, that's what's going to fix all this. And he expands this as a more general social phenomena um, with, like, you know, bureaucracy or the university or any social construct, political construct, um, behaving like an autonomous machine-like process. Although I have to... I have to rebut that if what he's saying is true, then it would make sense that all these social constructs would have this machine-like process because they have idealized this uh, capacity for calculation and put it in command. So, I mean, I, I think maybe, yeah, I, I see, I see how he could issue a rebuttal to this one, but I think. His point overall, though, is that there's the the, ab the abdication in favor of the black box you don't understand at all, like, and the the imagining that you do understand it somehow. Yeah, and um, and if if we feel like that some of this is stated in a sort of mealy mouthed way, he would be the first to tell us um, that. He is only professionally trained in computer science, which is to say, in all seriousness, that he, he is extremely poorly educated. <laughs> That's his, <laughs> I love, I love his, yeah, his humility here because he knows he's a specialist and he's not a specialist in the universal science, really. Like it's universal in some sense. He'll get into that later. But, um, you know, yeah, he can't. He can't mount the competence, courage, not even the chutzpah to write on the grand scale actually demanded. Yeah, I, I love that. I don't know. I, I wish more specialists knew that their specialty was special. Yeah. Um, scrolling forward a bit, I guess. Um, he does reflect on his kind of being embedded in this techno science cult at, at, at MIT and kind of observing all this kind of stuff firsthand and his disillusionment with all this kind of thing and how, you know, he's, he's more and more convinced that Eliza is symptomatic of deeper problems, that this is not just a kind of, this is the tip of the iceberg or it's the most recent kind of iteration and that he's, he's going to spend the rest of the book exp expanding on what it, what it is about computers that like reveals the structure of what has happened to us and what is happening the ongoing process yeah the the kind of like 
the the computer has for him like it it's reinforced and amplified all these um all these pressures all these dynamics and it, it, like people have been in a kind of long process of forming a mechanistic image of ourselves and the the computer is just the kind of latest in this lineage and it's but it is it seems to be accelerating right like it's getting worse in his estimation yes uh yeah he says uh uh surely much of what we today regard as good and useful as well as much of what we would call knowledge and wisdom we owe to science but science may also be seen as an addictive drug not only has our unbounded feeding on science caused us to become dependent on it, but as happens with any with many other drugs taken in increasing dosages, science has been gradually converted into a slow-acting poison. Beginning perhaps with Francis Bacon's misreading of the genuine promise of science, man has been seduced into wishing and working for the establishment of an age of rationality. But with his vision of rationality tragically twisted so as to equate it with logicality. Thus, we have very nearly come to the point where almost every genuine human dilemma is seen as a mere paradox, as a merely apparent contradiction that could be untangled by judicious applications of cold logic derived from a higher standpoint. Even murderous wars have come to be perceived as mere problems to be solved by hordes of professional problem solvers. Um, yeah, as Hannah Arendt said about recent makers and executors of policy in the Pentagon, they were not just intelligent, but prided themselves on being, quote, rational. They were eager to find formulas, preferably expressed in a pseudo-mathematical language that would unify the most disparate phenomena with which reality presented them. That is, they were eager to discover laws by which to per explain and predict political and historical facts as though they were as necessary and thus as reliable as the physicists once believed natural phenomena to be. They did not judge, they calculated. An utterly irrational confidence in the calculability of reality became the leitmotif of the decision-making. So this is like the idea of like uh, positivism in the social sciences, right? Yeah, this has an emptying out effect on everything else. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is a fascinating couple of pages because he, he kind of begins with like, he's kind of laying out the two sides of this big debate, right? Like on the one hand, like, uh, you know, you have people who believe that computers can and should do absolutely fucking everything. And then you've got the other people who think there's actually limits to what computers can do or should be able to do or should be permitted to do um and the former camp seems to be winning right like that the the endless seemingly endless elevation of calculation above judgment um he kind of i don't know there's a there's a fascinating page of like um like judaic law and stuff like that and just this is what kind of teasing out of like these different it's, it's, it seems that when we started doing philosophy we set off on the wrong path basically that like trying to systematize thought kind of leads here right like getting um getting from a kind of world of like um i i, I i'm doing i'm doing some disservice to what's being said here but like um you know judicial ordering and existence of relations and then going from there to mechanization of existence and relations and mechanization of human thought um that gets into a feedback spiral that leads us here yeah it's this idea of rationality is logicality Right. There's nothing to rationality other than logic is 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 this uh, right. the idea he's um, critical of. 
and and that's in contrast to the notion of like humans as autonomous and responsible beings, right? It, it's it's in, all, instead denatured and turned into pure pure reason, um, where there's no autonomy or responsibility or anything left left behind. It's just this scraping kind of mechanism. Yeah, I think I might have touched on the Stoics, uh, like the Stoic view of of you know the logos permeating the universe, the lawfulness of the universe, and um, therefore the law, you know, the ration, the inherent rationality of human beings. If you, we would only listen to this law of the universe. Um, being one of the poles of Hellenistic thought and in Roman philosophy. Um, but also, you know, there was this uh, pretense to Platonism, which was supposed to, you know, succeed, you know, the greatness of Plato in the Academy. But the, the irony of Platonism is that it smuggles in so much Aristotle that you wouldn't know that there was like a disagreement between those thinkers at times. And one of the big things that seems seems to be at least um, at odds between the Aristotelians and at least the way Plato wrote and the way that he delivered all this stuff is the role of argument in philosophy or in, you know, the understanding, understanding the, the human world. Um, because very often in Plato, you know, argument comes up. There's plenty of discourse and argument, but it's, um, but it's in this literary form and you're not sure what the takeaway is supposed to be. Whereas in Aristotle, you know, proceeds more or less algorithmically. Like, and, um, yeah, it's his lecture notes, right? That's, right. that's what we have of, of what he, um, wrote or said. Yeah. Um, this is kind of where uh, Wise and Mom actually gets into like political conflict and such, right? Like and, and values, right? That like this kind of techno technocratic mechanistic view of humanity kind of denies that there's any real political confrontation. Like it, it kind of insists that everything is algorithmically solvable. Um and that it kind of denies the the existence of conflict even. You know, it's it's all just a misunderstanding. If we if we would only follow the algorithm, everything would be great, you know? Um and Weizenbaum's like, no, like conflict is real, like conflicting values are real, like it's it's just not how it is. Um and values are big baked in, right? Like he's kind of points out that like if human values are illusory, then science itself is an illusory system, because it's it's got values baked in, right? Um That's like an, a very interesting dispensing of like Skinner and behaviorist, like kind of nihil like the nihilism at the core of that. Like and it's like in a it's in, you know, three lines like four lines <laughs> does not take long for him to do. It's not even four whole lines. Like, you know, for, he's just, all right, let me set this up. All right. Like he takes four lines to set it up. He explains it in the rest of the paragraph, which is a bit longer, of course. And actually that's like a page. Cool. Um, but I was surprised at the summary execution of this pretty, you know, pretty, I, 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 I ran into this a lot with, you know, science themed people um reason themed people um and i do wonder how much his yeah i wonder how much his cultural you know background really did inform this because he a couple pages back goes on eh, a little less long then it takes him to dispense with uh, B.F. Skinner about how the Jewish tradition 
you know, it, there's a contractual relationship between God and man. This relationship must and does leave room for the autonomy for both God and man. For a contract is an agreement willingly entered into by parties who are free not to agree. Man's autonomy and his corresponding responsibility is a central issue of all religious systems. Uh, so, you know, if, if there was no capacity to not agree, then you wouldn't need a contract. <laughs> like, I'm, th that's the point of the logical machinery is to, you know, once you do agree, like, we'll, this is how we'll agree. And, I, and that, that makes sense to me on like a number of levels, but, um, perhaps like most disturbingly when I think about, you know, what kind of pocket protector people scribbling equations on the chalkboard or whatever that about war that were, you know, ga gaining traction at the time of writing, there were probably people that thought you could just, you know, harmonize human interests with these equations and that's false. But if they were the game theorists coming up with the best way to carry out a conflict, that was a promising research program. Yeah. It's, I don't know, it's a, it's a really, all that stuff is is just a really interesting, compact kind of summary of, of, of big divergence, right? That like, the kind of formalization and like, you know, formation of logic and laws and stuff like that starts out from the footing of like, human beings are autonomous agents, and that's kind of a problem because they bump into each other a lot and knock each other over and, oh shit, I'm sorry, I knocked you over, and that kind of stuff. And so you have to formalize the interactions a little to smooth things over, but you begin from the assumption that they are autonomous beings and there's a lot going on there. And then the kind of, I guess, the, the, the study and proliferation of logic turns into logicism and scientism and this, this poisonous kind of thing that just uh, obliterates that original presumption that there is there's autonomous beings who can be in conflict or who, who can accidentally bump into each other. And yeah, that's the, that's the tendency that's, uh, has been like by the time, by the time Weizenbaum is writing, that's the tendency that has been on the march and has been overtaking fucking everything and is still doing so, you know, it's, it's only getting worse. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess to sort of, you know, defend Aristotle a bit here this is also like this idea of rationality is is logicality it completely I leaves out the idea of like practical reason that you get in Aristotle okay. um which is yeah I mean very important to any sort of idea of like Aristotelian ethics um like you actually you have to sort of like not just have like know-how but like you have to be able to like be efficacious and virtuous in a very sort of like how could you say like uh multi-dimensional way in order to actually be a good person um and 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 you know having this very like narrow idea of what rationality is would not be considered to be um uh, sufficiently virtuous to be a good person, yeah. Well, the virtue ethics is, uh, uh, yeah, virtue ethics often sort of counterposed to the rationalistic ethics schools. This, like the modern kind of putting together virtue ethics, either something embraced by people trying to kick back at this problem exactly, or, you know, people who want to go back to the fucking Stone Age and reconstruct the Roman Empire or something. But whatever, like, yeah, all right. Uh, uh, yeah. There's a this wonderful point made on the top of page 16, um, kind of pun pun puncturing a hole in scientism. Um, 
He says that, uh, I'm kind of quoting here, uh, scientific statements can never be certain, they can only ever be more or less credible. And the credibility of a claim, or the credibility, uh, and credibility is a term in individual psychology, a term that has only meaning with respect to an individual observer. Um, basically that, like, you know, the agent must be, in order for something to actually be credible, the agent must be free to believe it or not, and that must be an exercise in judgment and intuition. And... And so there's there's just no basis on which you could ever say that like these scientific statements are absolute iron truths or whatever. It's it's just it, they're they're more or less credible, right? And credibility implies this uh, these free agents, right? Yeah, it's the it's the whole Cartesian thing of like trying to imagine a universe without observers in it, right? Like the idea of like sort of a Cartesian plane where it, like. Mm. It just is, and the the observer is not part of it. Um, and then trying to 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 make science that where it's like, yeah, the, these just think these things are just true. Uh, it, yeah, and that's and that's a it's a it's a it's a it's a failed project, right? Then, like, you, if if all of this ultimately rests on human ju value judgments, uh, because you know credibility and observers believing or not believing the uh, the things that are said then this scientific process can't obliterate judgments right like as as illusory it's just a it's a silly fucking thing to try and do yeah i mean it just becomes like a smokescreen for you know whose judgment is actually behind this thing that is supposedly devoid of judgment absolutely and yeah uh, he said uh, he says and uh, towards uh, towards the end of um page 15, he says some um, things that, you know, one might think that, you know, there are some scientists that assume a null hypothesis and that this passage wouldn't apply to them, but I think it more or less does. Um, so this, the scientist is not immune to the illusion of certitude. In his praxis, he must, after all, suspend disbelief in order to do or think anything at all. He's rather like a theater goer who, in order to participate in and understand what is happening on the stage, must for a time pretend to himself that he is witnessing real events. The scientist must believe his working hypothesis together with its vast underlying structure of theories and assumptions, even if only for the sake of the argument. Often the argument extends over his entire lifetime. Gradually he becomes what he first merely pretended to be, a true believer. I choose the word argument thoughtfully for scientific demonstrations. Even mathematical proofs are fundamentally acts of persuasion. Thank you for listening to General Intellectinet. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps. If you'd like to support the show, get access to our community Discord and help keep the lights on, then go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month. Every contribution is greatly appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.